0: This ticker podcast is coming to you from the Citadel Securities Trading Post on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange.
1: Hi, everyone. You might know Ron Schneider. I've been chatting with Ron for decades now. He's always been a go-to guy for insight on all things proxy. Ron began his career as a proxy solicitor in the late 70s. He worked for the likes of Georgeson, Morrow, and D.F. King. Over the years, he's managed 1,600 proxy solicitations and 30 proxy contests. And for the last six years, he's been with DFIN, aka Donnelly Financial Solutions, where his job is helping companies use their proxy statements to communicate better with investors. Now, as Ron will tell you, the proxy statement is an important document. It presents a unique portrait of a company and can be of real interest to investors. The problem was, and is, almost nobody was listening or looking, much less voting based on the proxy document's dreary compliance-focused content. So, back in 2013, Ron put together the first guide to proxy design. Drawn from public filings, the 26-page guide offered up a selection of formats and styles, all aimed at making the proxy communication more visually appealing and, and this is key, understandable. Now in its sixth edition, the latest guide to effective proxies has grown to a two-inch-thick catalogue Filled with examples of the latest artful innovations, design techniques, and shareholder-friendly disclosures. It's all meant to inspire new ways of communicating that draw in the reader. Ron dropped by the post to talk about the guide and the latest trends in corporate proxies and how they dovetail with the evolution of governance issues. But I couldn't have him just stop there. We talk about the changes he's seen in capital markets, the latest governance issues and the growing role IROs are playing in the proxy process in terms of things like messaging and investor engagement. Now all that is leading to the proverbial seat at the table. I think you'll enjoy our wide-ranging conversation.
0: The proxy and the the topics that investors are increasingly interested in are are broad-ranging and extend well beyond... Uh, um, SEC proxy disclosure requirements they go into board skills, strategy pay and it, how it supports strategy company sustainability company performance and you know who else knows many of those topics than the IRO so while the proxy is still a regulatory filing controlled by legal, increasingly our clients are using collaborative cross-functional Teams bringing their various expertise and skill sets to the table, whether it's in the investor engagement uh, uh, a portion of fact finding, what do investors want to know about uh, drafting, and even solicitation. So, uh, while you know the, the legal and corporate secretary perspective is still very important, all the board-related uh, and risk-related topics, uh, talking about strategy and performance highlights, and how pay supports the uh, business strategy, how the board skills support the the business strategy, how the business strategy may be evolving, Uh, you know, that's right in the IRO's wheelhouse. And uh, we've uh, seen IROs take, uh, you know, team roles at some companies and others even been the lead at different times. And for some companies going back 10 or more years, this is not new, but for many companies are taking their first leap into this expanded uh, you know, investor communications focus to the proxy. They're pulling their team together for the first time. Uh, and um, uh, But I, I do think they're uh, for an IRO, I think there are definite benefits to applying their skill set and gaining a seat at another table because what they're doing with their proxy work is helping to protect the board by telling the board stories effectively as possible. They're helping to protect the comp committee and the CEO and executive pay and and explaining how that pay doesn't just come out of thin air, how the program is tied into and the performance metrics tie into and support the business strategy. And with the uh, rise in focus on sustainability and and ESG, particularly the environmental and social uh, parts of the equation, uh, high on investors' lists of questions they raise in engagement calls with companies and that they look for not just at the website but also in proxies. IROs are typically if not the lead on the ESG disclosure, heavily involved in that messaging as well.
1: I want to segue into uh, ESG for a moment. Um, some say this sort of uh, transformation to a uh, new long-term focus uh, mirrors that, the, the rise of passive investors uh, and how they're even more powerful than, than uh, uh, proxy advisors, uh, but they're uh, uh, tricky to communicate with. Uh, can you speak to that?
0: I agree with you there, and the way I would uh, put it, uh, you know, the rise in the relative ownership of—call uh, them index, call them passive. When people hear the word passive, uh, you understand that it just refers to their portfolio uh, um, uh, uh, construction um, uh, methodology. They are hardly passive when it comes to what they now call stewardship over their investments. So that includes active engagement could be mild activism through filing shareholder proposals or supporting initiatives of others, active proxy voting uh, and the likes. And um, there was a previously, you know, early in the kind of ESG or or, or social uh, um, focus, it was mostly exclusionary. This is going back decades. Let's not own sin stocks like you know, tobacco, alcohol, firearms, and things like that. And it was relatively... They were screened out. It was screened out, exclusionary, and it was a relatively small group of investors with not a lot of clout uh, that, you know, so if a company says, well, okay, we're going to forego them, they weren't missing out on much buying power. But uh, recently, and I think just in the last five years, the assets under management in the U.S. of active investors that use some form of ESG, not... As a necessarily a primary of the soul screen, but some form of, of screening on their investment selection process has gone from uh, under uh, $5 trillion uh, or 6, $5.8 trillion, I think, four years ago to $12 trillion as of the last quarter. Now, that's active managers. So, uh, you know, companies, and, and, and it includes some of those large mainstream index investors you're talking about. Now, that's the active ones. The passive ones that are going to own companies, irrespective of the messaging, they're going to engage with them on these issues as well. So, uh, you know, these issues are focused on by a, a wide... In fact, I think the $12 trillion is one out of every four U.S. investing dollar. Uh, you can't ignore that. Now, a, a big event happened in 2017 where uh, previously most kind of environmental-related proposals asked for companies to talk about their impact on the environment, like are you uh, polluting or what's your uh, methane emissions, whatever is you know, germane to that uh, company. And the mainstream investors, the, the BlackRocks, the State Streets, the Vanguards and others who own more collectively now than they did five years ago. Uh, it didn't tend to support those, and, and they would say when questioned, it's not that we're not pro-environment or, or believe in, in these things, but we don't see the direct connection between that issue and shareholder value. That's our primary focus. In 2017, you had three climate uh, change-related proposals at major energy companies, which were crafted as... Uh, you know, it, it, we're going to assume that there's a global warming. We want to know the impact on your company, its business, its sustainability under two degree, four degree, six degree centigrade uh, you know, warming scenarios. So in other words, the proponents change the, um, the crafting of the proposal from reporting your impact on the environment to what's the impact of the environment on you and your sustainability. That directly uh, impacts shareholder value. And so with those proposals, we saw uh, two or three of BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street Global supporting these uh, climate-related proposals at those major energy firms in 2017. For the first time, they passed. So they got majority approval, while non-binding in nature, that certainly uh, raised the ante on those companies to say something to report within the next year. It emboldens other proponents to target other companies. So that got a lot of people's uh, attention. So I do think that the increase in uh, investment and ownership and voting clout, even if they're not the proponents, but, you know, for many companies, those three investors alone own 20% of their voting stock. And to your point, uh, in some situations, I would say that they are the swing vote not so much the proxy advisors, whose reports they do read, but they are not driven, their voting is not driven by them. They use them more as data aggregators and, and screening tools. And I'd also say that I think there's a, a bit of conflation between uh, you know, proxy advisor recommendations and vote outcomes where people easily confuse coincidence and causality. So on a, let's say, a black-and-white governance issue, like a classified board or not, or shareholder rights to call special meetings or not, the proxy advisors are often reflecting the investor's viewpoint. So they're going to vote in coincidence with that. It's not causal. Uh, when you get to something more nuanced, like say on pay or contested director election, they're, they're going to look, it, it's not just yes, no, it's not binary. There's a lot of other quality factors they they look at, and, and so... Uh, based on that, I think some people may have overstated the degree of proxy advisor influence by adding the, uh, the causal and the um, a coincidence together. But if you, if you try to isolate just the uh, causal, I think that you'll see that those three investors at 18 to 20 percent of you and add other investors, index investors in there, uh, probably outvote them.
1: So IROs need to know uh, uh, and engage with these companies to find out exactly what their policies are. I mean, how do you find out what BlackRock's um, attitude about these issues are?
0: Well, uh, number one and these investors aren't necessarily hundred percent index they also have active components So in other words they do have portfolio managers and equity analysts and those would be the primary audience the uh, of, of the um, the IRO and their relationships and their messaging goes to them but in the pure index setting uh, there there's a term in investors IR immune it's all index driven and the likes so the IRO doesn't have relationships and yet, Uh, you know, with the uh, increasing cloud and ownership of these index investors, IROs don't have direct points of contact traditionally with an increasing percentage of the institutional vote. Hence, while the corporate secretary and others and and some board members are getting to know the voters, the governance heads, the heads of stewardship, as they now call it, these major investors, These are important relationships for the IROs to know as well. Now, these major firms do publish reports on what they did last year, what their major areas of focus are the next year, but they're usually not binary or or black and white. They'll say, here's what we're looking for. But there's a lot of nuance and qualitative factors that can go into their voting decision. And there's relationship building as well. It's getting to know those people.
1: They'll look at individual cases if you approach them and say, you know... for example, diversity really isn't good for us right now, or something. You know, uh, maybe they pull back on that. Kind of- well, I, I would put it this way.
0: Okay, so let's say whether it's the New York City Controller's office or State Street Global or, or some other investor that is intently focused on gender, among other forms of diversity. So they target a company that has zero or one woman director on the board, and they engage with them and they talk to them and say, "Look, we want to." You know, tell us why you don't have more diversity, uh, and, uh, the, the and the company and the board could say, uh, you know, we are looking for you know the best qualified people. We are going to look harder for you know, gender and other forms of diversity, but it is what it is at this point in time. But how about we tell you a little more about our board evaluation process and what we do with that information? How about we tell you a little more about our director recruitment process and how we're casting a wider net? And uh, if, if those are presented and are credible, that they're making a real effort, they can buy themselves a little time. Now, in a year or two... Investors are going to come back and say, so what's been the results of that? So I don't think it's just like a pleading thing. I think it's making a good case that the present is the present, but let us show what we're trying to do about it, and and they can buy some time that way. Um, and and one of the challenges has been traditionally boards were comprised of former CEOs of companies with relevant industry Experience and that's extremely valuable. I don't think anyone would argue with that. Uh, but if you're seeking greater diversity and including gender diversity, you can't. And the overboarding limits, you know, go down from the proxy advisors. So you know they'll they'll accept someone splitting their time between a lesser number of boards than they would in the past, and there's a fewer, lesser amount of public companies, so there's not this huge, you know, big pool of uh, CEOs that you know, haven't sat on boards. You have to cast a wider net, or you know, you're not going to get that gender diversity if you're only looking for past CEOs, because there have only been so many, and they are fully boarded, and so companies do have to search deeper, wider, and often younger to find uh, talented people Uh, that can add perspectives and contribute to the board. There's a a giant
1: opportunity to basically have a funner job as an IR in terms of being a storyteller and not just sort of saying the same thing over and over again in various meetings about your your financial side and your
0: economic side. I do agree if, if it was just a straight, you know, uh, you know active management is gone or, or insignificant, and, and everything 's indexed and all computer driven However, many of the large firms have a combination of active and passive strategies also the proxy voting issues. I mean, you know, the election of directors 10, 15 years ago, except in very rare cases, contested solicitations, completely just you know rubber stamped. You know, as a proxy solicitor early in my career, our objective was to get the quorum 10 percent higher every year. There's never a question: of Will they be elected, or will the equity plan be approved? And this is before say on pay, and before uh, cdnas And and so the cdna is supposed to explain the why of compensation committee. Uh, uh, decisions and so you know with the um, you know know, so director elections are no longer routine Uh, executive pay comes up for vote in one way or another in many companies every year these are very important issues Uh, a, 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 a poor vote uh, is not necessarily a scandal, but it can elevate the company's visibility in negative ways. Uh, the companies don't like that. Um, you know, active managers are certainly active voters, but so are passive managers. They're active voters, and uh, you know, so proxies are much more communications documents. There, uh, it's not just here's the board, here's the compensation. Oh, and let us tell you a little bit about a performance. Okay, increasingly investors are asking don't just tell us what the board mix of skills are. Please tell us why each of these skills is critically important to the company in its current environment and its foreseeable needs. Now, you have to balance that without giving away any competitive uh, secrets. But that's why when if you look at skills matrices, for example, and proxies over time, uh, previously they were, you know, name, skill, and the boxes checked or not. Uh, now you'll see more narrative by some of the skills, explaining not just what we mean by that, but why it's important to our company. The context. The context. Now, executive pay, it's not just the payouts and are they aligned with some form of performance and, you know, the proxy advisors recommend. Increasingly, investors are asking, let's back up a step. First, tell us how the pay program supports the business strategy. So we bought the stock, you know, if you're an active for an active manager, we bought the stock because we like the company's investment story. We kick the tires, management, the board, strategy. Okay. Then we get that first annual meeting proxy. We look at it. We look at the pay program. And the performance metrics don't seem to have anything directly uh, uh, in sync with the investment story. So which is it? You know, what's important about the company? So investors got savvy about that. They've called out some companies years ago on that. Companies are realizing, well, you know, maybe the same people that helped draft the investment story that the investors bought into should have a hand in drafting the proxy story to make sure that we're telling the same story consistently. And by story, I don't mean manufacturing something. I just mean making it coherent, making it cohesive between the two. Uh, and um, increasingly companies are doing that. So the, the, the biggest change we're seeing in executive compensation disclosure is not just the what and the outcomes and how they're aligned and, and how we uh, uh, you know, uh, develop you know, um, uh, amounts, but how does the pay program support the business strategy? And if the business strategy is transforming or shifting gradually, it makes sense that some of the aspects of pay would also whether it's the metrics or the weightings and the likes, So we're starting to see companies very directly. You know, the companies used to infuse strategy throughout the compensation section. Now you're seeing actual paragraphs or sections with titles such as how pay supports our business strategy or how our evolving business strategy informs our evolving pay program or for elements of pay tables. Here's base salary. Here's short term. Here's annual bonus. Here's uh, long term. Uh, Having a a new column on the right, not just what the element is, what it's for, what it rewards, linked to strategy. So you're seeing much more of that. So, uh, again, another example of the IRO knowing the strategy story, you know, and investors want to know, explain board skills in the context of strategy, explain executive pay in the context of strategy, the stakes being higher, you know, in terms of the impact of these votes, the visibility that negative votes can attract. It's it's a, an exciting time, I think, for IROs to leverage their current skill set and apply get a, get a seat at another table, and they're they're uh, you know they're they're benefiting the board directly. They're benefiting their company's reputation. They're protecting the CEO and their pay and the comp committee, uh, and in many cases they may well be improving their visibility within the company. Right. So in
1: fact, in fact, it, in, instead of being put out of business, uh, their job is even more important than ever. Um,
0: just kind of for different reasons. It's applying it to some different audiences and to some different mediums, but it's the same skill set. You will tell you, explaining complicated stories clearly and incredibly.
1: There was, uh, and I had a conversation about this the other day, uh, you, I'm, you may be familiar with the move from now that there are so few cell side analysts moving into the IR job. My theory is that uh, IR is actually less in need of that kind of talent and more in need of the old sort of talent that they had in the 70s and 80s, which was they came from the media side, and they were good at storytelling. And um, obviously you have to know your, your way around a, a, a spreadsheet, but um, maybe that's the kind of talent that, it's the kind of skill set that IROs need to develop more than.
0: Jeff, I've, I've seen both. I've absolutely... You know, worked with clients where the uh, the new IRO, or it's a new company, and the IRO is uh, uh, someone that you know covered their industry. But more often, it's a mature company, and the IRO has been active and you know on, on the earnings calls, and the yeah. CEO knows them, and there's trust, and they they, they understand the company and the industry. Uh, you know, there's no question that that and and they're analytical. There's no question that that skill set uh, can be applied, but. That doesn't mean they are or are not really good communicators. And so, uh, you know, journalists, uh, IROs can be excellent. I mean, I I can't generalize. I I think, you know, both those skills are needed. From whichever direction you start, you need to have some of the other. Uh, But uh, I don't think there's one model. Up till now, our
1: conversation has been talking about communicating with uh, the institutional side. (laughs) But there's technology these days, and it looks like maybe... It's getting easier to communicate with the retail side but my understanding is they don't vote on these issues they leave it up to their brokers or they just they just don't vote um them to do that um what I don't understand is here's this essentially your biggest shareholder in aggregate they're not really getting the attention from the IRO that they once did and and they're not even paying much attention to these issues these ESG issues apparently um and I find that if you could reach out to the retail, that would be a big, big game changer. Right now they vote, I think, 20% of the time.
0: Yep. It's even less than that, okay? Uh, if you look at the retail component in the aggregate of, of companies, uh, in um, and, you know, in, in back 10 years ago and before, before there was notice and access... Uh, where companies could elect either to, you know, mail the traditional materials to all holders or they could choose to send them a mail, it's not electronic, mail them a notice of Internet availability, at which point, if they want to vote, if they want to, first of all, obtain the materials, they can access them over the Internet or request a paper copy or right. uh, and the likes, at which point then they could decide if they're going to vote. So that became basically a two-step process. So it certainly uh, eliminated some, you know, costs in terms of... Uh, postage and, uh, and and printing and paper uh, and the likes. But uh, it did have an immediate negative impact on retail voting participation across the board. That was not a surprise. People expected that individual investors are going to be a little confused. What is this postcard I'm getting? It names the proposals, but I can't vote on it. Yeah, I have to take some other step. Uh, and so what happened is if you go back you know, before notice and access 10, 12 years ago, the proportion of retail shares that voted at all U.S. companies, and this is a combination of companies that did vigorous solicitation versus others just mailed the material out, across all companies, it was 40% of the shares, but they were voted by about 17% of the holders. Okay, So, in other words, maybe one out of six retail holder would vote, but they tended to be the ones with a larger economic interest in the company. So, uh, you add notice and access, and now five percent. It's gotten a little better, but it, it's still under six percent of retail. In other words, nineteen out of twenty will not do anything when they receive just the notice of internet availability. And um, and, and those nineteen own about those five um, percent of the holders own about 19 percent of the retail shares. So in other words, retail participation was vote shares was cut in half by not sending people the old-fashioned traditional materials. Now, that's not to say there isn't a role for technology or better packaging or better messaging. I mean, in my, the early part of my career, I was a proxy solicitor. I, in proxy fights, I called shareholders. I called them at home. Sorry, it's your dinner time, okay? Uh, you know, and, um, uh, you know, they would say, well, I do have the material. I think I'm going to vote, but I only own 100 shares. I mean, you know, is it really going to matter? And, and the truth, and of course we would have to say every vote matters. We don't know how close the outcome is going to be. But in the aggregate, yeah, 100 shares may not matter. But you add up all those 100 shares, they can matter. And you've seen how close some even non-contestant, you know, say on pay votes that fail at 49.9%. Well, a little more cultivation of the... Re- See, these institutions are going to vote. The question is how. So the retail can then be your swing vote. And, you know, the problem is it's not as cost effective to cultivate, you know, a a hundred share or a thousand share individual as it is a 10 million share institutional vote.
1: Well, that's always been the case, but technology is changing now. Um, When you start talking about proxy design, is is there anything involved with, with getting the retail vote
0: on board? with that design? Sure. Well, first of all, they have to open the document, okay? So, you know, packaging has to be inviting, you know, a a branded document cover. I mean, you know, the old-fashioned black-and-white Times Roman notice of shareholder meeting, that, that reminds me of hear ye, hear ye, notice of meeting, you know? Hardly compelling, you know? That's just a legal requirement that be there. So now proxies are starting more often with branded cover letters telling you, the way annual reports used to look, a lot of that is being applied to proxies now. Uh, They're featuring more robust uh, contextual cover letters from CEOs, from the board, from a combination of two. Those letters get read. You certainly are familiar with proxy summaries. Uh, Some of them are one page, some are 18 pages, so there's all kinds of summaries. Uh, They generally will be reviewed. The only problem with summaries is they tend to to create duplication because typically what's in a summary is drawn forward from where it normally... Resides and most companies will. Okay, it's compensation related. It's in the CDA, but we want to mention it in the proxy summary. Okay, it's in the it's board related. It's in the director of election section, but we want to give you some highlights about the board and their skills. So summaries tend to create a little bit of duplication. I think that's a small price to pay if it improves the likelihood that key information is read at least. Uh, once it's the only thing I read. So, and, and, and visual. I mean, you know, uh, only the most determined reader who really wants to know about, you know, uh, board oversight of risk is going to read a block of, of, of dense text. But if you if it's a process or the board evaluation process and you describe visually the process and who, who are the players of that process, how does it work, how does it work on an annual basis, what, what's the outcome, what's done with it, I mean, you know, we're visual, and, and that tends to draw the eye. Now, that doesn't mean graphs and visual elements just for the sake of them or turning a serious document into a cartoon book, but um, we, we do find that selective use of visual images, whether they're graphs, call-outs, we're seeing more timelines, you know? We haven't made dramatic changes from one year to the next, but you know what? You may not be happy with where we are right now in this issue, but can we remind you where we've come over the last four or five years? And that could be, you know, diversification of the board, it could be governance practices, it could be compensation practices. So we're seeing timelines and the likes, as opposed to a lengthy text. So if, if the, the old view was, if you, do, if you don't want people to see it, bury it in the footnotes. Yes. I mean, and I don't take that, you know, completely seriously, but, you know, you've heard that term. Kind of the new way of risking that key information not be noticed by a lot of readers is leave it in the text. So, if it's something important and you want to call uh, people's attention to it, first of all, nav- 70, 80 page documents, you need good navigation, okay? So, detailed tables of contents, page headers and footers that remind you at the top and the bottom of each page, reminding you where you are in the document, and particularly for online readers like most of the larger institutions, um, a clear hierarchy of section headings and subheadings you know does it make sense what are the primary secondary tertiary elements applied consistently Uh, judicious use of graphs visual elements to call the attention to what's really important and 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 some some good visual images not only supplement text they can actually replace text we've actually seen clients add to visual elements in their proxy and at the same time reduce word count and page count at the same time. You'd think the two would be conflicting. They've actually succeeded in doing that by taking a lengthy page of text and, well, let us show you the process flow of how it worked. Well, I think all of those can contribute.
1: Do you have any like empirical evidence that that's getting more retail people on board to vote?
0: Bells and whistles and
1: timelines and stuff? No. Not really.
0: Not, not really. I mean, the hard empirical evidence is that uh, if they do, they're not going to vote. They can't vote until they access the materials. So they can't vote just based on the notice of Internet availability. So either that has to compel them to take step two, which is to obtain the materials so they can vote, uh, or you send them the physical materials. So I think a lot of companies are revisiting. It's not all or nothing. They can stratify, uh, you know, on the retail base based on bang for the buck, okay, so 80-20 rule. So if 30% of our shares are in retail hands and uh, 20% of the retail holders own 80% of the retail shares, maybe we'll send them the physical materials and we'll send the notice of Internet availability to the majority of retail holders that are probably not likely to vote anyway. So it's it's I think it's using the different tools in your toolkit, but, you know, balancing your mailing strategy, your budget, with your solicitation strategy, and it varies year to year based on the importance of proposals, how close you think the outcomes are gonna be, vote requirements, so it's not, it's not one answer for any particular company that stays static from year to year.
1: I went through uh, with a friend of mine who's an uh, art director, uh, your uh, uh, very thick guide, yeah, which is available, I like, guess, on your site. Uh, And he called it proxy porn. He just was going through it all, and he was looking at all the different ways that you know stuff could be said and stuff, and it's kind of amazing. I, I went through it too, and I didn't go through it with quite the analytical eye that he did, but he uh, he thought it was remarkable. You can just sit there, that's if you're really nerdy about it, you can sit there for hours and just kind of leaf through this and, and look at how different people did it and approach the same problem with kind of different, slightly different um, um, executions. But,
0: well, Jeff, uh, we are uh, fortunate to work with uh, over one third of all U.S. companies in some aspect of preparation of their proxies, from the traditional, um, you know, uh, fi- SEC filing, printing, distribution, web hosting. Increasingly, we're involved in messaging. Uh, you know, we survey institutional investors. We interact with them all the time. For our clients that haven't yet had that direct interaction on these issues with their investors. We can tell them what they're looking for. They look at their peer companies. They see what they're doing. They maybe don't know why. So we have an awful lot of clients saying, we know it's time for us to to do something better. We're starting to look bad relative to our peers. Like, we don't care. We don't know where to start. We can tell them what's important and where to start. You don't have to do everything in one year. And so uh, on the the proxy porn, uh, what the guide is, it's a catalog. Uh, that I do the primary screening for each year since I joined Donnelly six years ago from our very diverse and creative client base. This is all public filings. It, it, you know Companies have always looked at other companies and what they've done and how they've done it and seen what they could adapt to their... Story. So we just uh, took a, a third of sec.gov and we sliced it and diced it, not by company, but by section, topic, or feature. And uh, you know, we have some of the more visual, some of the more creative, some of the more clear examples. There's no one perfect proxy. There's no one that does everything better. Uh, you know, different things work for different companies and different industries with different cultures and the likes. Uh, and so. That nerdy person who may spend more time, you know, flipping through the proxy guide—it's a time-saving tool because they used to spend more time flipping through sec.gov or asking friends and their attorneys and others, "Have you seen any good proxies lately?" and having a scattershot approach. Right.
1: Well, I think it's an amazing guide, and it's, it's gotten a lot thicker since in, in over, what, six years.
0: It has, uh, and, and part of the reasons are, when we first started doing it, the first guide was 28 pages, okay? Uh, we, we figured, hey, this might be useful. Let's pick some different formats for director elections, uh, maybe a couple of proxy summaries, a, a couple of compensation graphs, a uh, nicer ways to present tables. And people said, we've been waiting for something like this. But they said, can you do a deeper dive into uh, you know more visual in the compensation in the CDNA, so we went back and did our second version in the first year. So we've done six and five years basically, uh, and that did a deeper dive into the CDNA and various topics there, uh, performance metrics, pay performance alignment, uh, peers, why they're chosen, pay setting process, engagement. Not just talking about it, but explaining how the process works, what you do with the information. The different companies do things particularly well. They do it for a certain reason. Uh, so, uh, and, and, you know, 10 years ago, there was about maybe 10 or 12 proxies you should look at. And you'd see 90% of all the creativity that was going into them, you know, from those pioneer companies. That has exploded since then. Every year, a couple of hundred more companies take initial steps. Others keep evolving. Not, not, it,
1: not in our house. They get mailed to us, and they're on that funny sort of, you know, tissue paper, and they get put directly in the bin.
0: Most are still not there, but the percentage that are adding some design and clear messaging, and I don't mean to isolate design. I mean, I put design third in the hierarchy of what's important. The first is content, the story. What are the facts, and is it clear? The second is navigation. Can you locate it easily and quickly and efficiently? And that's really important for an index investor that doesn't use it as a reading document but treats it more like a reference document. And with proxies not being standard in terms of where certain topics are located from one to the next, they need that navigation. The third, but very important is design. How can you use design and visual elements to draw the eye to key topics and maybe to make it more digestible like process flows and timelines and call-outs and, and things like uh, like that. And it's also spreading from large cap companies to mid and smaller cap companies. And the topics that our, our clients are asking us to report on, so this edition of the guide featuring 2018 proxies has every section that the other ones had. It now has an expanded section on ESG disclosures in proxies. It had a section on that before. But companies talking about that, not just at their website, but in in their IR messaging, but in the proxy, is exploding, and that's based on investor interest. It's certainly got a a new new section on pay ratio disclosures, since most companies had to do that for the first time last year. It has a new section on business strategy discussed in the proxy, okay? So that could be just IR 101 to update the index investor, let us remind you what our company's about and, you know, where we're at in our journey. Uh, it could be strategy that relates to board skills, it could be strategy that relates to the compensation program. That's a brand new section in the guide, new section on timelines. You know, companies that don't make dramatic year-over-year changes but want to get credit for the, the path they've taken over the last several years. So each year there are more companies that are doing interesting things to draw from and there are a greater number of topics for us to, uh, to collect and, and showcase. And so perhaps to the frustration of some of my uh, uh, colleagues who say, Ron, can we make the guide a little smaller? And I, I kind of get passive uh, passive aggressive, like I'll see what I can do. And the answer is no. There's just more to show and more to pick from.
1: Okay. One size doesn't fit all, though.
0: Right. Uh, you know, there are different, and no one company has the perfect proxy. I mean, despite the fact that there are... You know, governance awards and IR awards, and companies that do a great job in different areas, including proxy statements, do get recognized. I think that's great. uh, you know some companies are going to do focus more on you know on the board others more on compensation others more on sustainability others more on strategy and performance others more on you know oversight of risk and various board functions and uh, not everything's equally important to all a company. so we speak to a range of companies from you know pre-public to newly public to upcoming spin-offs a big activity, about to have their first proxy as their new, unique, independent company. What are their goals for that first proxy? They may not be scrutinized as much on perennial governance and uh, in the first year and compensation topics. So do they want to use it more as a branding uh, tool? Or, you know, we we understand, uh, you know, the whole ESG focus. We're, We're just, you know, staffing up our company. We don't have that story down yet. Fine, you know, be aware that in year two or three, we're going to probably want to bring that in. So uh, every company doesn't have to do the same things or, or copy their peer company. They should, you know, have a clear view of their goals and objectives. They hopefully are engaging with some of their larger investors to hear directly from them, you know, what's important, what they want to hear. If not, they should certainly look at their peer companies because a lot of our clients don't want to be on the vanguard or you know experimenting but by the same token they don't want to uh, appear as relative laggards. like we really don't care about communicating effectively and it's important to look at your peer companies from time to time because many of them could be innovating and so you know staying still may not be an option so because the bar can be moving and many of our clients do that and and they'll often ask us you know What's important in any given year, you know, we, you know, or or we know we want to focus on some board-related aspects this year, maybe some compensation you know, aspects next year. Fine. Most companies attack this incrementally. There are other companies that decide this is the year we're going to make a major leap. You know, we want to we want to you know uh, uh, change everything up. Okay. The best thing there is time. You know, if we can start that conversation as soon after the prior year's annual meeting, there's more time to understand goals, objectives, to show alternatives, to arrive at a design that's going to be a proper house for the new content and have them come together. Start <laughs> early. Yes, yeah, I mean, if you can, but sometimes they don't have the consensus or the, or the wherewithal or they're focused on running their business. I mean, that, that's really what they're uh, about. But if you can start early, There's just more time. It's not, you know, everyone has to focus on this in this particular week. Uh, uh, So, yeah, if time's in your favor, use it.
1: Ron Schneider, thanks for stopping by the Ticker Post today.
0: It's been my pleasure.
1: And that's all for your Ticker Podcast this week. You can get yourself a free copy of the Guide to Effective Proxies just Google for it. This podcast was produced at the fabulous Borough Park and Kensington Public Libraries. Thanks to Earl of Brooklyn for production assistance. And thanks to you for listening. And you've been listening to the 100th Ticker Podcast. I'm Jeff Cassett.
0: Citadel Securities is a member of FINRA and SIPC. The content of this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Citadel Securities.